Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. My name is Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. On today's show, we're going to be joined by Nick Davis, the filmmaker behind Once Upon a Time in Queens, the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary on the 1986 Mets. Before that, we're going to get into our opener, which is to catch up on the playoff races, which have changed a lot in the last couple of days. Then we'll go into our three batter minimum and talk about the mess that is going on in San Diego. We're going to look at some of the amazingly hilarious numbers behind the success of the Tampa Bay Rays and talk about whether we should be worried about the White Sox. Matt, first, I wanted to ask you, I came up with, a, I don't know, a Twitter joke, I guess, and it's like, I know it's a half troll bad take, but the more I think about it, the more I'm talking myself into it. Anytime someone talks about the American League Most Valuable Player Award, where I think most of us think, well, it's obviously Otani, they talk about how uh, the Angels are not very good and how Vlad is pushing the Blue Jays into playoff contention, which is true. And I've started thinking about it from the other side. If that is true, is it not also true that Ronald Acuna is the least valuable player in baseball because the Braves only shot towards first place after he got injured? Does that make sense? I know that's like a bad take, but also it's like there's a little the sliver of truth into it. <laughs> yes? It's a bad take. Okay. <laughs> just just check it. All right, let's catch up on the, uh, the, the playoff races here. And it seems to me there are three most interesting races, but I'm kind of saying the nationally wildcard race is over. It's Dodgers and Cardinals, right? The Cardinals have won 11 in a row. They are four and a half up on the Reds. They are four and a half up on the Phillies. They are six up on the Padres. Nobody's catching the Cardinals. I'm not even like sold on the Cardinals, but they've won 11 in a row. Is anybody catching the Cardinals? No, I mean that's that's no. I mean okay. that's been a lock for a couple of days now, and then they just keep. It, it was like a lock on like Monday when they won their eighth straight. And now they've won eleven straight, so it's like, um, it's it's yeah. been an impressive it's been an impressive run. Um, it, it looked like you know the 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 gap between them and the first wild card, like you know it looked like it was going to be the Dodgers or Giants. Now more likely the Dodgers, but it could still be the Giants. We'll get to that in a second. Was you know it's getting smaller. That gap is getting smaller and smaller. It looked like it was going to be like a twenty game gap. It's not going to quite be that, so it won't look as massive when they finally when they finally play. I mean the the Cardinals have earned it. You know I've been extremely disappointed with with the Reds, a team that had a had were leading in the wild card like about a month ago and had the easiest schedule, and then they keep losing to the Cubs and the Pirates. They will be end up kicking themselves when all is said and done. The Phillies just don't have the bullpen. The, the Padres. Well, we'll talk more about them later. It's the it's it's the Cardinals obviously in the second spot. It's locked up. They'll be able to line up uh, Adam Wainwright. I'm assuming that's who they want pitching in the in the wild card game, and that'll be a lot of fun. I still think there's a chance the Dodgers catch the Giants for the for the um, for the National League West, and they could end up playing a, playing a playoff game, a playing game rather well. to determine <laughs> to determine the division winner. Yeah. Which would let's let's not let's not forget that that, that if, oh. if they end up tied when the season ends, they will play a playing game to determine. Who wins the division? Who goes to the wild card game? Uh, yeah, I was gonna. Well, let me first say the um, the Cardinals. By the way, they've won eleven in a row. They still have seven. Yeah, seven more games left against the Cubs. But what's gonna happen is, just by definition, they will be worse going forward than they are now because over the last eleven games, they've won all eleven. And when they finish the season, like I don't know, three, like seven and three, um, the local St. Louis papers will all be. Did the Cardinals peak too soon? <laughs> That's what's gonna happen. Here's the thing: um, we are gonna have a play a game. I don't know where, though. It could be in the National League West, which would be amazing. It could be in the American League wild card. Let's look at the West real quick. The Giants are up by two 
over the Dodgers and uh, they finish off their series today. And then the Dodgers end with three series, one in Arizona and then at home versus San Diego and Milwaukee. The Rockies go to Colorado and then are home against Arizona and San Diego. None of those are very tough schedules. Like the Dodgers have to play the Brewers, but you know, will the Brewers be doing much than lining up their rotation? Probably not. I think on the show last week, I called it over. And as much as I want to go back on that, it's over. The the Giants are going to win. Although the playoff game would be super cool. That would be, I can't remember. We've had like tiebreakers before, but I don't know if I can remember one between two teams with such history who were both playing so well in that season. Like, would that be the coolest one game playoff you can think about? Yes, I think it would be. Although obviously the stakes are different when it's like, go home or just go to the wild card game as like the consolation. The one thing I will say, and you know, by the time people get this, the the Dodgers afternoon game in Colorado will be done. Max Scherzer is taking the mound for them in Colorado. The Giants are going to Colorado this weekend. Those those are the toughest games that they're going to play probably at Colorado. I'm not going to declare this quote unquote over. If the if the if the Giants are still up by two games after they leave Colorado, yeah, I'll I'll say it's over. But if they're if it's less than two games come Monday, I'm not calling it. So anytime you go to Colorado, it's tough. The Rockies are tough to beat there, as we all know, as we've discussed many times. If the Dodgers can get the win today in Colorado and on Monday it's one game or less of a gap, I'm not I'm not I'm not giving up on them. And in the American League wildcard, the Red Sox have actually sort of gained some separation. I assume you watched them play the Mets the last couple nights. And I don't know if the Mets are just limping to the finish line or if the Red Sox offense has just completely waken up, but they have been pounding everybody. What they did to Taiwan Walker last night in those, uh, there's words I would say about the yellow uniforms, but I won't. They seem to like them very much. Uh, he, I mean, he does not look like the same guy he did in the first half, which was sort of predictable in some way. But you look at like Kyle Schwarber, it sort of looked like he might, you know, be a hot streak fluke in Washington. He looks like that dude again. Boston is up by two over the Yankees. Toronto is one half game out. And I'd like to say it's a three-team race, but Seattle is still out there. Two and a half out. Oakland, three and a half out. I feel like the baseball gods will push this into a Seattle-Oakland wild card because that's just sort of the thing that always happens. <laughs> but it's like every single day I have a different opinion about where this game will be played and who will be in it. And this is the one that I think is like the ripest for a one-game playoff. If you look at the remaining schedules here, it's actually really interesting. The Yankees have a brutal end of season schedule they have to go to boston they have to go to toronto and then home against tampa bay that's super hard meanwhile both toronto and boston gets a series against the orioles toronto gets to play minnesota boston gets to play washington right so it's so much easier for toronto and boston on the other hand the yankees have a lot more head-to-head opportunities they don't have to like scoreboard watch because they get to play boston and toronto if you ask me who is going to come out of this once every six hours, I will probably give you four different answers a day. Like that's that's how back and forth this goes. I mean, the Blue Jays, the, as you said, the path is there. They've got Minnesota and Baltimore. Like they really they sim, similar to what I said about the Reds before. The same thing goes for the the Blue Jays. The Blue Jays are tied right now in the lost column with the Yankees. There's no reason they should lose more games than the Yankees from here on out, given the respective strengths of schedules. I know the Yankees are closing with Tampa, and Tampa probably will not have that much to play for. They probably will have clinched the division. They still might want to play for home field advantage to the, through, through the ALCS. Also, they still might just want to like keep the Yankees out of the playoffs. Those teams don't like each other, and these are competitors. Like I don't think that even if they, they have everything quote-unquote clinched, I don't think the Rays are going to roll over for the Yankees. I think the Rays would love – to play spoiler against the Yankees while they're tuning up for the postseason. So there's no reason, as I said, for the Blue Jays to lose more games than the Yankees from here on out. Um, basically, as long as they can avoid a, a sweep against the Yankees next week um, when they're playing them at home, then the second wild card spot should be theirs. I just want to see the Rays and Jays play each other in the playoffs now because there's clearly some beef over the uh, last couple of days. And I don't know what your opinion is on the whole card gate. The five second version of this is that the other night, uh, Kevin Kiermeyer picked up one of the cards from Toronto catcher Alejandro Kirk and took it into the dugout. And that's one of those cards that has, you know, secret sauce, scouting reports, whatever sort of information. And it became a whole thing. And then last night, Ryan Barucki pegged Kevin Kiermeyer right between the shoulder blades. And I just found the the whole thing like I like a little bit of salt and drama and I found it so weak. This is cold <laughs> oatmeal. This is milk that's been left out like long enough that it's not fresh, but it hasn't quite spoiled. Like 
I, I can't stand those cards in the first place. Like, I don't think anybody needs them. If I'm Kevin Kiermaier, I'm totally picking up that card. You can't take it out of his pocket. Like, that's not okay. Uh, but he dropped it in front of you. It, this is the stupidest thing, and I can't believe it still happened. <laughs> I think I think I saw Brandon McCarthy put this on Twitter. It was like, these teams have played each other 15 times this year and know each other really well. There can't possibly be anything on that card that would surprise anyone on either <laughs> right. team. What so did like, say on the card? Don't throw middle, middle fastballs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there was, it was just funny. There was a time, like this was like in the 90s when the, the Knicks and Pacers were huge rivals where a member of the Pacers, they were playing each other in the playoffs and a member of the Pacers left his playbook like at an airport seat and some Knicks fan found it. And what did the Knicks fan do? He gave it to like Don Imus or someone on like the WFAN staff. <laughs> and they like, just like read it aloud on the air. Oh. Like that's what I want. It's like that that kind of beef where like they give it to the local radio host to like spread uh, – to talk smack about the other team. Yeah, you know, Kiermaier should have taken a picture and tweeted it from the dugout. I know that's not allowed either, but I'm, I'm super out on this very weak and lame controversy. All right, we'll take a quick break and we'll be back with our three batter minimum. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. We'll move into our three batter minimum. Our first topic, what has happened to the San Diego Padres? They are 76 and 75. They are 22 and a half games out. And even worse than a terribly disappointing season, there have been a bunch of stories out of San Diego from the San Diego Union Tribune and the Athletic, among other places, about, you know, internal clubhouse strife, about how half the players hate the manager and the other half of the players hate the players who hate the manager. And a lot of that stuff can't be sussed out, you know, unless you're in the room, but there's nothing good about it. Like it is all bad. And there's a lot of baseball reasons why the team is underperformed, right? Like injuries have been a mess to the pitching staff. You don't go out and sign Jake Arrieta and Vince Velasquez after they've been dumped by the Cubs and Phillies, unless you are absolutely desperate for pitching. Shocker, those guys haven't worked out. But for all the talk about pitching injuries, what shocked me is that the lineup just hasn't hit. They have the 22nd highest slugging percentage. In the second half, they have the 24th best slugging percentage. They have been outslugged in the second half by Kansas City. And I get Sal Perez is there, but these are supposed to be the Padres. And I get that part of it is that you didn't expect the Giants to do what they're doing. That's certainly true. But when you look at what's happened to the Padres, Matt, like how much of this is going to go back to uh, management? Um, It's I mean, it's funny, right? They, they had all these big names. So like they, they had like a like they, they have a, a quote unquote, a famous they have a famous roster, right? You know, Tatis, Machado, huge names. Eric Hosmer, also a big name, someone that we've talked about a lot on this show, maybe not as good as his name suggests. Blake Snell in a similar boat, who was their big acquisition this, this past offseason. So going into the year, I think there was a reason to be skeptical that, you know, there was some talk, oh, can they challenge the Dodgers? I didn't think they challenged the Dodgers. I certainly didn't see this either. I thought they were better than a 500 team. So there definitely have to be some questions about the team that was built. But I do think this this – controversy around this this clubhouse, you know, upheaval raises an interesting question. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on this because in the last couple of years, there's been this big movement in terms of, okay, we want our manager to be an extension of the front office, right? We want the, you know, the manager to, to really take what the front office is saying in terms of how you build the lineup, how you make decisions in game, and really be in sync with the GM and baseball ops, all those folks. And there's maybe no better example of this than the Padres, right? Where AJ Preller, their GM, hired Jace Tingler, who was like, it was like clear, hey, we're buddies. We work together in Texas. We are like good, good friends. And I do wonder if like almost this is this is where we're, the first time we're going to kind of see backlash against this, you know, this this top idea of of the manager as an extension of the front office, because I think to a certain extent reading these stories, you almost see that, that some of the, the gripes seem to be, we want the manager to kind of be on our side, but how can we see the manager as our side when we know the manager is buddies with the GM and that there's no kind of separation between the manager and the clubhouse and the front office. And that maybe that this is a, this is we're, we're kind of seeing like the, the downside of this, this kind of arrangement. Possibly. So, I mean, there have been rumors over the last couple of days that they might potentially want to go bring Bruce Boshi back. I don't think that's actually going to happen, but do you think Bruce Boshi wins with a rotation that's been as tattered as this one? Like you might be totally right about everything you just said. And yet I'm not sure it ends up mattering more than the fact that 
the pitchers have been hurt and the players, like, look at the hitters. Right? If you look at the hitters, who has lived up to expectations? I would say Manny Machado has. He's been uh, pretty fantastic. Jake Cronenworth has proved he's not a fluke. And I know Tatis has been injured, but he's been incredible when he's played. Who else? Who else has lived up to expectations? Because it, it seems like that's kind of it, right? Um, I mean, I guess it depends on sort of what your expectations are of Will Myers, right? Like, because last year he was great. Um, but I think he's probably back to kind of what you would expect Will Myers to be, um, which is just like, you know, you know, he's got he's got a 110 weighted runs created plus this year. Last year it was 155, but in the previous years it was 97, 107, 107, 114, 115. So actually, this is like, you know, I guess he's he is meeting expectations, but you have to have actual like realistic expectations of what he is, which is just like a slightly above average hitter, right? Um, so um, I think that's it's yeah. I mean. This is sort of the, the the hype of the roster because they had the names, but I guess as we kind of said, some of this isn't entirely isn't entirely surprising. You know, Adam Frazier was their big midseason acquisition. He's been just you know brutal for them since since it's hard to say it any in a, in a nice way. So um, they're going to be an interesting team to watch this offseason because they obviously have the core of a very good team. But there are clearly some some issues, and I don't, I don't want to even say around the edges. There are clearly a some issues once you get past like the top four spots on the roster. Well, I'm glad you brought up the Frazier acquisition because I remember at the time we were all like, "Oh, this is kind of confusing." Like, okay, it makes sense if you think you're going to trade Hosmer and Cronworth's going to play a little more first base, and that didn't end up happening. But since that didn't happen, now you had three guys on the right side of the infield. I mean, Frazier was clearly performing over his skis with Pittsburgh. Anybody, I don't think you could have seen him performing this poorly for San Diego, but it was very clear he was not the guy who was in the all-star game. And they didn't get a starting pitcher. And I know they tried to get Scherzer, and I'm sure they tried to get other guys. But you came out of the deadline, and you're like, wow, what what a weird set of acquisitions. Like, here's an infielder you didn't really need, and you didn't get a starting pitcher. And then you go back to last winter, and obviously they made all the pitching upgrades. You know what really has not worked out? at all is Haseon Kim, who has a 269 on base and he's played some good defense and there's that. But, you know, you look at those moves and the Snell move and you look at what's gone the other way and it's like, oh yeah, Luis, Luis Patino is really good. And that one seems like it may not age well, especially since there's more minor leaguers for Tampa that they got that are pretty highly regarded. Um, the catcher whose name I'm blanking on, Mejia, has, has played pretty well. That You can kind of go back to some of those moves that got super hyped over the winter and you think, okay, well, Darvish, that's still good. He pitched well, and they didn't really pay a high price. And Musgrove, that looks like it's going to work out well because he's been really good. And all the other ones are like, eh. There's, I think you can second guess a lot of those. And I mean, and even Darvish, like, I mean, there's no question you redo that, you redo that move. But and like his peripheral peripherals are better than his actual ERA. But like even still on the surface, his ERA is four point one three. Like he struggled in the second half. Yes, his expected ERA is three point two three, which at least is promising for going forward of like analyzing new Darvish and saying, okay, like he's probably fine, but the results have not been, you know, what you would, ex- what you were hoping for of like a quote unquote ace. Moving on to our second topic, the Rays are 94 and 59. They just clinched a playoff spot. The same Rays who traded Blake Snell away and got roundly pounded for it because he'd been with them in the world series. And obviously it was a super bad look. And the Rays are the best team in the American league. I think pretty clearly right now, Here's like I look at this team and there's not other than Wander Franco, who's you know still young and he's been injured. I don't look at them and I say, here's the obvious superstar guy. You know, I think Franco will be that guy, but he's not the reason they've been so uh, successful this year. And so I found a couple of interesting numbers that I think is really cool. And before I get into any of these, Matt, I have to ask you a question. In our shared notes document here, I've got a little note that says, don't cheat, Matt. Did you cheat? Because I want to no. ask you a question. You didn't. Great. Okay. If you know me, and if you've listened to this show, you know how much disdain I have for pitcher wins, how little I care about pitcher wins, and the fact that I'm going to talk about it in relation to the Rays will tell you how uh, hilarious this is. The Rays have 94 wins. 23 different pitchers have a win. That is the seventh most all time. Matt Myers, who is the winningest pitcher on the 2021 Tampa Bay Rays? I mean, it's obviously going to be something totally random, so like, I don't even know... like. <laughs> Like in terms of most wins? Yes. They have one pitcher with double-digit wins, and he's got 10. I don't know, like Kittredge? Nope. Here, here's a hint, and this is a great hint because it's going to send you in such the wrong direction. He's injured and hasn't pitched for them in more than a month. And now you're thinking to yourself, oh, it's Glasnow, right? <laughs> it's not Glasnow. Josh Fleming. 
Josh <laughs> Fleming with a 501 ERA is 10 and 6. He is the only Ray with at least 10 wins. And, you know, McClanahan's got nine and Kittred's got nine and maybe they'll get there. But I don't know. I, I, what speaks to how they do business, I think, better than that. They don't have the ace. They don't have the guy. They just keep doing this. They churn players and it's unpopular. And I don't I don't love all the ways they do business. And I totally understand that part of it. And yet here they are with 94 wins. Like, should we ever underrate the Tampa Bay Rays ever again? Uh No. Ever. And I think that they're kind of, and I think they're actually kind of the, the flip side, the flip side of like what I was talking about with the Padres, right? Because they have, you know, they're a team where they're sort of the, the, the perfect example when we talk about, hey, that the, the manager is an extension of the front office and they have no issues. So, like, what's the problem? I think a little bit of the difference with the Rays is that Cash, Kevin Cash, their manager, is a former player. So I think that in some ways often gets you, it's easier to get buy in from the players to some of the ideas that you're trying to sell when it's like, oh, this guy played in the big leagues. There's also the other factor, which is they don't really have, and this is kind of by design, they don't have the the the, the same kind of high-priced stars that the Padres do. And so some of those players can sort of maybe hold more power in the clubhouse or in the organization because of their status, where like the, the, the Rays kind of by design don't really have those kinds of players. So there's they're always relying on depth as opposed to stars, and they, they're able to get buy-in to the way they do things in a way that no other team does. And they're also able to you know, extract value out of players that you didn't think were as valuable as they could be until they got to the race. You know what else I think drives people nuts is that in 153 games, they have 149 different batting orders, 11 different guys if it lead off. There are only two spots where they've had a single guy take even 50 starts. And that's uh, Austin Meadows has it cleaned up 53 times and Brandon Lau has it lead off 54 times. And you hear so often that you need, you know, you need consistency. You need guys need to know where they're going to hit. I feel like whenever an offense underperforms, that is one of the first things that fans complain about is that, oh, the manager's messing with the lineup too much. You look at the Rays and you look at the Giants. They have a different lineup every single night. The Dodgers too. I actually don't think I would want the same one through eight every single night because it means that the man, either you have a terrible bench or that the manager doesn't understand how, you know, platoons work. <laughs> like, does, does it matter to you that there's no consistent batting order here? Um, it doesn't, but I do think this is one of those things about the, when I'm talking about like getting buy-in, right? It's, it's, it's the kind of thing that sometimes you'll hear star players gripe about. And when star players gripe about it, high paid players gripe about it, it's more likely to like lead to, you know, duress in the clubhouse, duress in the media, all this, you know, sort of that that kind of stuff that just becomes kind of annoying and distracting. But when the players buy into what you're doing and there's a clear like connection between the strategy, between the players and the manager in the front office, it just, it just, does, it never, it never becomes a thing. And I think that the, the teams that have successfully kind of managed themselves this way, the Rays, an example among small market teams, but even you probably a good examples of um, bigger market teams who spend more of the Giants and, um, the Dodgers, another thing I'll note, Dodgers, Giants, and Rays all have managers who were big league players not that long ago. And I don't think that's a going I don't think that's by accident. The other thing with the Rays is they have the highest OPS with the bases loaded in a full season in baseball history. With the bases loaded, their OPS is uh, 1,170, 1170. Last year's Padres were slightly better, but you know, that's an app third of a season, so I don't worry about that too much. The best ever, and that's not a skill, I don't think. It's not predictive. I think it's more maybe a, a thing that happens, like the batting average on balls and play in those situations is like 450. But that's an amazing way to score runs. Like that's an amazing way to outdo maybe the underlying projections that don't necessarily show them as the hardest hitting team or the best contact team or anything like that. But if you can do that with the bases loaded, you're going to score a ton of runs. And the other thing I wanted to mention, and this doesn't necessarily impact their wins in 2021. If you look at their minor league teams, so I'm looking at the their five levels of minor league teams here, you know, triple A, double A, both high A and low A, and then the rookie ball raise. Those teams, all of them are winning. All five of them made the playoffs. All of them have, uh, let's see, four of them have a winning percentage over 640. The double A team uh, went 62 and 55, so 530. And I never really look at minor league winning percentages is mattering that much because you know if you have a guy who's great then he'll get promoted and you lose him and there's you know very inconsistent levels of play and everything but when you can do that when you can have all five of your your top minor league teams winning and making the playoffs i think it says a lot about how skilled you are at acquiring players and coaching up players you know i, I would i would love to go back at some point and see you know 
when this has happened, what has it meant for the the major league team in years to come? Like that's that is cool to me. I don't know if you've ever looked at winning percentages in the minors like that, but I saw this and it totally stood out to me. I mean, you 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 see stuff you see stuff like this happen like sort of almost like anecdotally. You know, we're you know we're we're going to talk to uh, Nick Davis shortly, the, the maker of the '86 Mets documentary. If you look at like the 1983 Lynchburg Mets, like it's like this like legendary minor league team with Doc Gooden and Lenny Dykstra stealing 100 bases, like that kind of thing. So you see it like anecdotally, where or I think you know the. Um, the Red Sox had like a, a Portland team in like 2005 that had a bunch of a bunch of players who ended up being difference makers on the 2007 World Series team. So like you see it kind of anecdotally, but it's always interesting because a lot of times you'll you'll hear people say, "Well, winning doesn't matter in the minors," but I do wonder if this is like you know I don't want to give the Rays too much credit, but is this part of their sauce where they're like actually no, we want to try and figure out ways to to win games and and kind of you know use our strategy at all levels and try to get kind of, for lack of a better word, indoctrinate our players into how we're going to try and and win games. My final note on the Rays before we move on to the White Sox, the moment we've been waiting for for about three years arrived this week. Shane Boz was promoted to the major leagues. He is the guy you don't remember from the very infamous Glasnow, Meadows, and Boz for Chris Archer trade, Maybe made even more hilarious by the fact that Chris Archer is now back with the Rays. He has been a highly regarded prospect for a while. He came up the other day and he was electric, averaged 97 miles an hour on his fastball. He is already pretty high up on the list of fastball rise leaders, like who's got that elite rising fastball. And he is the kind of guy I'm thinking of like, was it 2008-ish David Price, you know, who came in as a rookie and was a reliever in the playoffs. And I could totally see him being the next kind of guy where people who don't follow these kind of trades closely are like, wait, who? Who, who is this guy that they found? Um, because that trade, you wouldn't think it could get any funnier unless you're a Pirates fan. And it seems like it still might. Okay, our third one here. Early on in the season, Matt and I talked about the White Sox a lot. And part of that was because Tony La Russa was the manager and there was a whole lot of questions about how that would work and the whole your mean Mercedes thing. And I feel like we haven't talked about them in like three months or even really thought about them that much. And that's because it's been so clear for a while they're winning this division. They've been in first place since May 4th. It seems like for the last three months, they've just been kind of waiting for the playoffs. And that's fine. And they're talented. And I really like their pitching staff a lot. And they could easily make some noise. And yet they are a 500 team. In the second half, they are 31 and 31. And when you look at who they have had their wins against this year, the breakdown's really funny. They are four games under 500, 25 and 29 against winning teams. They are 60 and 37 against losing teams. If you were to take the truly bad teams that they've played, take this fivesome. Baltimore, Minnesota, the Cubs, Texas, and Pittsburgh. They are 33 and 9 <laughs> against those teams. I don't know that that's predictive in any sense, but it does make me, you know, think a little bit harder about their 85 and 66 record. Again, they've been a 500 team for the last two months. And when you look at the uh, some of their players, it's been kind of a weird second half. Like their big trade deadline moves. They went out and got Craig Kimbrell, who you know was dominant for the Cubs. Three homers in 52 innings for the Cubs over the last two years. Already four homers allowed in 19 innings for the White Sox. To get him, they traded away Nick Madrigal, their second baseman who had been injured, and they went out and got Cesar Hernandez, who I've always kind of liked as a sneaky under-the-radar player. He's been brutal for the White Sox. 222, 303, 287 with a 65 OPS+. plus. That's not to say they're not talented and good, because I really think they are. But all of a sudden, I've got some worries about this team that I don't think I have thought about for a while. The, the, to me, the key is Kimbrel because, I mean, the model, I guess, and also probably Carlos Rodon, for that matter, who's been battling some arm soreness, and there's it's kind of a little unclear how, you know, available or effective he's going to be in the postseason. Cause, but, like, when they went and got Kimbrel, it was built around this this model that a lot of teams have used in recent years was, like, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the postseason, we can use our best relievers basically every game. So if we know we can go to a game where we're going to have a good a starting pitcher who, let's be honest, probably in the postseason can give you five good innings, maybe six, and we also know we're going to get an inning from Kimbrell and Liam Hendricks in every game, then we're going to be pretty tough to beat, especially if we can get a lead. Kimbrell has, you know, he's given up more, he's given up four homers in 19 innings with the White Sox. He gave up one home run with the Cubs um, in the first half of the season before he got traded. There's definitely something different there. His velocity is actually down, which I think is a little bit of cause for concern. Now, it certainly wouldn't surprise me if come game one of the ALDS, it's like a reset and Craig Kimbrell is, you know, is, is back, essentially. So I'm not counting him out. But like the, the velo thing gives me a little pause. He was throwing like 97.5 
in June, he's throwing like 95.5 now. So I don't know if that's he's pacing himself or if, what is it, you know, so it's kind of hard to, I don't want to read too much into it, but I think that's, that's really the key to it is Kimbrell because he was kind of like the, the linchpin to kind of this whole, this whole plan for them in the postseason. Yeah, I, I agree with you fully. And I think the fact that we haven't really been watching the White Sox closely in a while, maybe overshadows what an amazing season Liam Hendricks has had. Scott Merkin, our White Sox beat writer, tweeted this out the other day, and I did like a triple take when I saw it. He has 103 strikeouts and seven walks, which is the most obscene thing. And if you look at the, like their pitching going into, uh, I, I was going to say a potential playoff series, but it, it's probably going to be Houston, right? Like they're going to play the Astros. If you start with Giolito and Lance Lynn, that's an amazing top two. Rodon ideally is your third if, if healthy. Uh, and if not, Dylan Cease is a pretty good third. I don't think Dallas Keuchel is making the playoff roster. I can't think of a good reason why he is. And then you look at the bullpen. So you've got obviously Kimbrell. Hendricks has been fantastic. Michael Kopech is a huge weapon. Aaron Bummer is maybe the best lefty reliever people don't know about, along with Garrett Crochet. And Ronaldo Lopez, I find really hilarious. He's been trying to make it work as a starter for years. And if you look at his overall you know, numbers this year, they're, they're fine. But if you break him down, Ronaldo Lopez by starter and reliever, the numbers are absolutely amazing. As a starter, he has a 450 ERA. As a reliever, he has a 0.9 ERA, 20 innings, <laughs> 22 strikeouts, two walks. I don't know what it is. I haven't looked closely enough. I don't know if it's velocity, pitch mix, whatever it is. Just let the man relieve. And I think the pitching is going to be really good. The offense is weird, though, isn't it? Like, they don't have a right fielder. The Adam Eaton experiment kind of predictably failed. In September, they've started Brian Goodwin, Romy Gonzalez, Leary Garcia, Andrew Vaughn, Adam Angle, and Gavin Sheets. And that's kind of a weak spot, on the other hand. Yeah, so Hasmani Grandal, 20 games since returning from injury, eight homers, 500 on base, 788 slugging. Abreu is still very good. Robert is still very good. I don't want to be like gloom and doom here because I think this is like a super talented team, but I also think people underrate the Astros and it's not hard at all for me to see the Astros knocking them out right away. Yeah, I mean, certainly I wouldn't be surprised if the Astros knocked them out, but I, my final thought on the White Sox is basically the opposite of everything we're saying about the the Cardinals right now, which is like, oh, the Cardinals are so hot. The White Sox look underwhelming. It's kind of a reset when the playoffs start. So I almost feel like people are going to be way too down. Just in the same way that people are going to be way too high on the Cardinals, people are going to be way too down on the White Sox. So I'm very curious to see game one when Craig Kimball comes in because he'll almost certainly pitch in that game how he looks. I feel like you just promote a, a rant and or rave you might have at the end of the show, but we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with our guest, Nick Davis, the director of Once Upon a Time in Queens. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petrillo and Matt Myers, and we're really pleased to be joined today by Nick Davis, who is the man behind the new 30 for 30 1986 Mets documentary, Once Upon a Time in Queens, telling the story of the legendary 1986 Mets in ways that you have absolutely never seen or heard before. And Nick, when I first saw this, I, when I saw this documentary was coming out, um, the first thing I said to myself was, well, I need to know, you know who is making this? Because when you have a, a, a baseball story that is this, let's say, beloved, legendary, and known, you want to know if the person behind it actually knows the baseball or if they're trying to pick up the sports side of it, you know, in addition to the filming expertise. And uh, the more I read about you, the more it's clear that not only are you a big baseball fan, a big Mets fan, but you have vivid memories of actually like watching those games. And so it's not like you had to learn yourself up on the story. Like you knew this super well going in. And I imagine that helped you a lot and informed you in the story you wanted to tell. Yeah, it did. Uh, You know, what's interesting is as a filmmaker, it's like sometimes it's really fun to tell, you know, do a a film about something you don't know anything about. But this was the complete opposite. Uh, This was something I lived and breathed, you know, from the time I, you know, can remember I was a Mets fan and waiting, you know, my whole life for a great team. Um, and, and as it came together in the eighties, it was just tremendously exciting piece by piece as that team came together. And what's funny is, you know, you would do the interviews and like, you know, heart halfway through the interview with, you know, one of the players, they'd say, boy, you've really done your research. And I would think, I didn't really do any research. (laughs) He's just a Mets fan. I lived it. And nobody who lived through it and was a Mets fan could ever forget those guys. Um, So it was it was a total labor of love. 
So that being the case, has this been a project you've been pushing to get made for years? Or did you hear that it was floating around out there and you're like, oh, I have to be the man to do this? Like, how did you get, get no, this uh, you know, no, pushed over the air? No, no, no. I, I, I was pushing to do this for years. And, and I actually, in Hollywood in the 90s, I had a meeting and I was pitching a, a, a fictional version, you know, with the Goodfellas of baseball. And all the characters were based on the 86 Mets. And whatever, that didn't happen. Um, and then in about 2010 or 2011, I saw something that they were doing it, a long-form documentary about the 1986 Mets. And I was so angry that I had not gotten myself in a position where I could be the one doing it. Um, and, you know, thankfully for me, that, that it didn't work out. The timing on that wasn't right. The Mets weren't ready. I don't, I don't really know what happened with that project. But my last film uh, for television was, was an American Masters for PBS about the baseball player Ted Williams and an American master had had entered into a partnership with Major League Baseball. So from the moment I was working on that, I was asking MLB, why have you never done the 86 Mets as a long form documentary? This is the era of, of the long form, you know, film like the OJ film and, and, and the 86 Mets could lend themselves to that kind of telling. And, um, you know, I, I was persistent with MLB and formed a great relationship with them. And, and um, so after that film aired, then got very serious about making this happen. Um, and, uh, you know, luckily it, it, it worked out. Nick, as, as I mentioned, when we were we were chatting um, off air that I grew up as a Mets fan, the 86 Mets were basically what made me a baseball fan. And I think that mm. you could argue that no team and its fan base are more closely associated with one season in its history than the Mets in 1986. I mean, the players are honored regularly at City Field. They have two members of that team in their broadcast booth who, you know, who reminisce regularly. So I'll admit when I first heard about this project, I thought to myself a little bit of like, what's left to be said about the 86 Mets? But yeah, then I watched sure. the film and there was a lot of stuff in there that I never knew or had never seen before. What made you want to tackle a topic that might seem to some to be like well-worn territory? Well, I guess I felt like, yes, there had been books. Yes, there have been documentaries about certain parts of, of the story. But the whole epic story of how that team and, and it came together over time, uh, you know, had never been told. And, and I feel like, you know, in film, and, and it's a very different thing you know, a film from a book or from articles and stuff. And so, yes, maybe all this information had been out there, but no one, it had never been told in an emotional visual way where you felt like you were going on the ride that we went on in, in the 80s with that team. Um, and that's what I wanted to do was capture the feeling uh, in a way that, you know, only film, if I can use that word, cinema, you know, that, that that's what... That's what film can do. And I, you know, I love a lot of those books and we had a bunch of the authors on as, as, as interviewees in the film, but, but I feel like capturing the emotion and, and the, the ups and downs of that season and, and the whole, the whole period really starting in 77 with the Seaver trade and the blackout and the city being in the toilet and the team being in the toilet and how we got from there to 1986 uh, and then, you know, the uh, less uh, thrilling aftermath of it all, that was the emotional journey I wanted to take people on. And that hadn't been done before. So I wasn't concerned that that people said, oh, you know, this is it's all been out there before. Not in a documentary film. It hadn't been. Now, you mentioned the the emotion and one 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 aspect of that that really stood out to me was um Keith Hernandez. And, you know, it was, you know, typical Keith, he had his usual candor and humor that he has on air as a broadcaster, but he also got very emotional talking about his father and his brother and sort of how they shaped him as a player and as a person. And that was like one of those elements of the documentary that really stood out to me. It's like, well, wow, I've never seen, you know, Keith speak like this. You know, did you, did you know he was going to open up like this when you started, when you approached him? Like, was this just something that kind of came out as part of the, the interview process? And did you know as it was happening, like, wow, this is amazing stuff? Well, I was very hopeful because he had written that book, uh, you know, I'm Keith Hernandez, which is a fantastic book. It doesn't get up to his joining the Mets. It's all about his early years, his struggles in the Cardinals farm system. And before that, with his father growing up with his brother and Northern California. And all of that is in that book. And so I felt like 
okay, wow, he's, he's, he's willing to talk about that. I mean, he's willing to write about it. And that's the, the center of, of that book, which is really, it's a fantastic book. And um, so, you know, we spent a good deal of time in the interviews with him, you know, going over that. And he was, yeah, right from the get-go. He was, you know, talking all about, you know, I mean, we have plenty of stuff that we could never use about the struggles he went through, you know, in Tulsa in 1973 or whatever, when he's in the Cardinal Farm System. But the, the point was, yes, as, as you're saying, like, wow, we're getting this. And we don't get that on the broadcast. Like, he, he doesn't talk very much about his dad on the broadcast. And certainly he wanted to get into the complexity of his relationship with his father, whom he loved, obviously, and, and who loved him. But the, 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 the weirdness of that relationship. And out of nowhere, he brings up the movie Fear Strikes Out, which is about, uh, you know, what, 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 we, what we used to call is a, a, a crazy person, Jimmy Pearsall. Like Jimmy Pearsall had serious mental illness that, that was sort of because he had such a domineering father. Um, and that was kind of uh, completely revelatory to me, that Keith thought that was the movie that summed up his childhood. Um, fascinating. Yeah, the openness of some of the the players when they spoke to you, I think, is really what makes this. And I was curious, aside from, you know, someone like Gary Carter, who's unfortunately passed away, was there anybody from this team who you really wanted to get and kept going after and they just said, no, they wouldn't show up for you? Yeah, I did want to get George Foster. Um, George Foster was a very important piece in the making of that team. When he uh, came to the team in 1982, he was sort of the first great acquisition of the Frank Cashin era. And it was a signal to the rest of the baseball, these guys mean business. Now, it didn't work out for George Foster. He didn't, he, he didn't have a very good first year at all. Uh, the subsequent years were okay until 86, although he was player of the week in June. Uh, he then went into a deep slump and lost his starting job. And, and it, it didn't work out, as we detail in the film. But I felt like it would have been great to hear from him. And, you know, the initial uh, contact, the, you know, he said no. And then I was lucky enough to get him on the phone and, and convince him to do it. Um, and he said, all right, that he would do an interview. And then COVID hit. And when COVID hit, it scrambled our production schedule. It scrambled the way we were going to do uh, the interviews. Um, and so I would just be Zooming in uh, remotely from my office in New York City and talking to these guys wherever they were. You know, in his case, he uh, lives in Cincinnati. And when we reapproached him, uh, he said, he, you know, I think he'd had enough time to think about it and just felt like he didn't want to do it. Um, so I, I, I would have loved to have talked to him. On the other hand, I feel like we do tell his story, uh, you know, as sensitively and as completely as we can in the, in the film. Of all the players you did get to speak to, not just players, you know, anybody associated with the team, who did you walk away from saying, wow, I'm shocked by the the openness of this guy. Like, he's the one who really informed me in ways I did not expect. That's a really hard question because I, I felt that way with almost all of them. And and I mean, I had no idea I was going to get such great stuff from from Keith, from Daryl. Daryl has such, Daryl Starberry has such, perspective on on 24 year old Daryl Strawberry and and Dwight Gooden who's so open and 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 honest about his struggles and 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 then you know Kevin Mitchell so delightful Lenny such a wild man but in control of his wildness I feel like he's crazy like a fox Lenny Dykstra and and that interview was was remarkable um so I I have a hard time sort of picking one uh you know it's like picking among your children you know I love them all the same in different ways I mean Ray Knight was great I love talking you know hitting with Ray Knight it, I I was really surprised overall not just at how open they were but at how smart they were about baseball I think as fans or at least when I was a fan then of that team I had no idea how smart they were at, at, about baseball. I thought they were just really good at baseball. But to hear them talk about the game and strategy and and pitching and hitting and setting up, you know, pitch counts and how you hold the curveball and all that stuff, I was really blown away with their baseball intelligence. I mean, say what you will about Lenny Dykstra, the guy's a baseball savant. And I really, I, I, I was really struck by that most of all. When I was watching uh, the the film, my wife was in the room with me, sort of you know, watching along with me, and she was like, 
is he really like that? Referring to Lenny Dykstra. And I was like, yeah, I, I, I think he is. And I'm guessing that's a, what we saw is, is what, is what you get in real life. Yeah. He, he, I mean, he gave one of the more remarkable interviews. He was the first interview we did after we got back to work after, you know, COVID shut us down for a while and we had to figure out a production plan. Um, so we did that a remote interview at a, a rented, you know, place we rented in LA. That's not his swimming pool behind him. Um, and, um, it was an incredible four-hour experience. Uh, he he was he was so thorough and so on all the time. And when I say on, I don't mean he wasn't performing, but he was himself. And he's he's profane and hilarious and unhinged and a little hard to understand. And has obviously done a lot of hard living. Um, but he's also very honest. And I mean, in the first five minutes of that interview completely <laughs> unusable unprintable hilarious i had to i had to mute my 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 microphone from new york i was laughing so hard it was so funny i was like this guy's like lenny bruce i mean you, you i can't use any of this but it's it's hilarious and and then by the end of the interview and and this was in the film like when he's talking about his life now and uh you know days turn into weeks weeks turn into months months turn into years but it's okay it's okay you know why I won a World Series in New York City. Where do you go from? And it's just like, ooh, it's chilled. I felt like this is like Marlon Brando and on the waterfront. Like I, I, I couldn't believe his emotional range. Um, that so uh, to answer your wife's question, yes, yes, <laughs> that's what he's like. Now, you, you before, earlier you mentioned sort of you know in its infancy, you talked about this this uh, movie, you know, trying to make the Goodfellas a baseball. And it's funny because in my notes here, I have a reference to Goodfellas because there's this one shot of Mookie Wilson that I've seen people talk mm. about and that stood out to me after Game Six of '86. There's a shot following Mookie Wilson down the tunnel, which is like this kind of mind blowing camera shot. It's like the shot in Goodfellas where they follow him into the Copacabana. And it's, I, I was shocked that I'd never seen this footage before. Like, who took that camera shot following Mookie down the tunnel? Where did it come from? How did you gain access to that? I mean, there's a bunch of a bunch of behind-the-scenes footage along that along those lines, but that was the one that really stood out to me. So I'm kind of curious how you got that and some of the other stuff from the postseason that had never been seen before. Yeah, that, that was incredible. I, so Major League Baseball did uh, off and on have a documentary crew following the 86 Mets for some reason. And they were there when Mookie Wilson got injured in spring training. Um, and they had an, a, a, a new angle on uh, the 86 uh, home playoff games. Um, and and that had never really been seen before. Some of it was used in the totally excellent um year-end review film, A Year to Remember, that, that a lot of Mets fans got uh, for Christmas in, in uh, December of 1986. So some of it had been seen before in that uh, film. But this shot, I don't think they used any of this shot. And the side angle, it's all the same side angle that we start the film with when Mookie hits the ground ball. Um, and then, you know, for whatever reason, Mookie uh, ran towards second. And the cameraman, and you, we're sort of used to this now because you see it all the time. Uh, but you didn't see this kind of shot then. And the cameraman raced out towards the, towards the first he goes to where everyone's jumping on Ray Knight. And then he found Mookie at the, at the, um, at the mound and then just follows him in. And it is, as you say, it's like an incredible shot. Uh, and I, I've actually been trying to find the name of the guy because I, I, I do want to thank him. Like it was an incredible shot and it's an incredible moment for us you know, as filmmakers to, to find it and then be able to put it in the film and, and, and bring you to that time and place, which is what the whole film was trying to do is like bring you there as much as we possibly can. Um, and, and that was just a, a totally great shot. And I, yes, I, I love that you referenced the Copaca shot, the Copacabana shot, because we, we thought that way too in the editing room. It was like, this is, this is Goodfellas. And the cops, the cops slapping him on the back in the dugout. It's just, it's just so New York. It's just great, you know. Um, now, Nick, a big, a big part of the legend of the 86 Mets, you know, is how they, they played hard and they partied hard. And, you know, the way we talk about partying and, and casual sex in general, I'd say, has changed a lot in 35 years, especially during, you know, the, the Me Too era. As a yeah. filmmaker, how do you thread the needle of trying to address this topic without, you know, glorifying what we probably now consider to be boorish um, behavior. 
Yeah, that's a great question. That's that's it was very very important to all of us uh, on the, on the production team. Um, you know, many of whom were women. You know, it's like the 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 best thing I think that we had were the characters themselves, and so to hear them address the issue was so much more meaningful than you know, egghead commentators who would have talked about, you know, the distance society has traveled. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but I feel like hearing uh, Daryl say, you know, I don't have anything to be you know, apologetic for. That's what it was at that time. And then Ojeda saying, you know, we've all come a long way. Um, so to, to let those guys be part of the conversation and, and their, their evolution in the years since was very helpful to that sequence, I think. Um, because yeah, they, they were, you don't get away with that now. And the, the fact is you don't get away with it then if you're not winning 108 games. You know, I think that the fact is, and as, uh, Renee Graham says in the film, um, you know, it, we knew and we didn't care because they were winning so much. Nick, before we let you go, and uh, we are talking to Nick Davis, the filmmaker behind Once Upon a Time in Queens. I wanted to pass along a story I heard uh, just a couple of days ago because I want to know if you've if you've heard this or if you're uh, if you're aware that the film has sort of made this happen a little bit. I was watching the Yankee game, and one of the commentators on Yankees broadcast is David Cohn, former Mets pitcher who won 20 games in 1988 and is very closely associated with those mid to late 80s Mets, but was not on the 1986 Mets. He was traded for in spring training in 1987. And he passed along that people constantly think he was actually on the 86 team because, mm. you know, he arrived like right afterwards. And I think he mentioned that because there's been so much talk about this film. Now he's getting more questions about what it was like to be on the 1986 Mets, which of course huh. he was not. <laughs> Right, <laughs> and right. I got kind of a kick out of that. Uh, and I was just, just curious if you'd heard him say anything about that. Uh, no, I, I, I don't watch the Yankee broadcast, <laughs> but uh, that's, that's great to hear. And, and um, you know, uh, funnily enough, I feel like of the guys who came in after 86, David Cohn is the one who, who could have fit in on the 86 team. I feel like some of the other guys that, that, that the Mets brought in, you know, wouldn't have fit in with that kind of uh, clubhouse. And I, I think, in fact, a couple of them told me stories about David Cohn in spring training of 87. You know, why'd we get this guy? And, you know, he's, he's terrible. And he, he got tattooed in a spring training game. And then I, I think he, like, you know, slid down the airplane as it took off. You know, he, he rode something as a surfboard down the length of the plane. And one of the players turned to the other and said, I guess that's why we got him. <laughs> like, he'll fit right in. Um, but, um, you know, the thing is, it's, it, it is it, it, obviously it's a film about sports. It's a film about baseball. But it is the characters and, and the personalities on that team that, that make the, the film, you know, that's what the film is about. It's about those people and those those characters and how they came together for this one tremendous, very memorable year. All right, Nick, the last question I have for you is sort of the Mets since then, because one of the things I know, there was someone at the end of the documentary, I can't remember who it was, they said something to the effect of, you know, this whole idea that this was a failed dynasty is kind of overblown, as it was Carter and Hernandez were already kind of at the tail ends of their careers when they won the World Series, so they weren't really going to be factors going forward anyway. And by the end of 86, Doc and Daryl were already showing that as talented as they were, they weren't necessarily players that were going to be, you know, re relied on. That So maybe this this idea that this was a failed dynasty doesn't really, you know, hold up to close scrutiny. Where do you stand on that? And what is your perspective on the Mets um, in the time since? Well, those are two sort of different questions. I do think that uh, had they had they remained intact and had management understood the importance of character, uh, frankly, had they just not traded, not not let Ray Knight go and not traded Mitchell, I think they might have had a much better chance of winning again. Nothing against McReynolds or Hojo. And Hojo probably could have still been the starting third baseman. Ray Knight would have been a backup third baseman, backup first base, and an and a important veteran in that clubhouse to ride herd on the younger guys. I think that's what they lacked after 86. Um, and Mitchell was just was just a dynamo and would have found – Davey Johnson was great at getting people at bats. He would have found a way to, to get Kevin Mitchell at bats, even if they brought in McReynolds. Anyway, so uh, – but I think that, that 
it, it is true that because, you know, they, they didn't win again. Well, they weren't intact again. So it wasn't the same team. And yes, it's disappointing they didn't win, certainly in 88, but even 87, they, they really should have won. Um, but, um, but I think when you really see all that they did and, and off the field, I, I don't think it's sort of as much a disappointment that they didn't win more. It's a miracle that they won one, uh, given what was going on. So, so that's, that is my new perspective. I didn't have that perspective then as a fan. I was disappointed beyond belief in 87, 88, 89, 90. 90, I thought we should have won. But more than that, I think that what is most disappointing about the Mets since then and I think this has a lot to do with the ownership change that happened in November of 1986, the month after they won the World Series, when Fred Wilpon became official co-owner. Nelson Doubleday had been the owner in 1980. Doubleday Publishing owned the team. He had to sell the team when Bertelsmann bought Doubleday Publishing, so he sold it back to himself. And Fred Wilpon had right of first refusal, so he was able to come in and become co-owner. And they never won again. And I think it's not just that they never won again because of that. It's, it's the, the, the team and the franchise somehow embraced this little brother thing. And that was not the case in the 70s, in the 60s, in the 80s. The Mets weren't the little brother. They were the new kid on the block, but they were more popular than the Yankees. It was a National League town. From 1964, when the Mets moved into Shea Stadium, they outdrew the Yankees something like 21 out of 29 years until the 90s. And then they sort of embraced this little brother thing, and, and, and the Yankees have just taken over the town. It wasn't that way, and it doesn't need to be that way. And there is a certain generation of Met fan who firmly believes that with new ownership under Steve Cohen, we're going to reclaim the town. Um, so that, that's, that's the perspective of the Met fan who was in the editing room, who, you know, the filmmaker had to say enough, enough, get off your soapbox. I'm making a film here, but being given this platform, I'm telling you now what I believe as a Mets fan. Thank you for giving me this uh, chance to get on a soapbox. I really appreciate it. Once upon a time in Queens, everybody check it out. It's on uh, ESPN plus and more platforms to come. Nick Davis has been our guest. We'll be right back on the ballpark dimensions podcast. Each week, Matt and I like to look at a guy that you should know a little bit more about, highlight someone maybe under the radar. I don't usually do this with 31-year-olds who just made their pitching debut, but we also don't usually have Anthony Ghost. He made his debut on September 20th, and he touched 100 miles an hour eight different times. And if you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, Anthony Ghost? Do I I know that name? Do I remember him? Yes, you do. Longtime Major League outfielder who converted to pitching, and now he's back in the bigs and he's throwing absolute gas. A quick recap of how long this man has been around. He was a second round choice by the Phillies in 2008, and he got traded three times. He was in the Roy Oswalt trade. That's how long ago this was. In in 2010, traded by the Phillies to the Astros for Roy Oswalt. Got traded to the Blue Jays, got traded to the Tigers. He's been around for so long that his first major league start as an outfielder in 2012 was a Jays-Yankees game. Omar Vizquel was Toronto's shortstop. Derek Jeter was the Yankee DH. Andrew Jones was playing left field for the Yankees. This is how long ago we're talking. And goes, you know, was a an outfielder with you know, limited success. In 2015, he was the full-time center fielder for Detroit, 140 games, 90 OPS plus. You know, he had speed, play a little bit of defense. I remember that was the first year of Statcast, and we tracked him from the outfield throwing like 98 miles an hour. And he just never really made enough contact. And in 2017, he was DFA'd by the Tigers before the season, spent the year in their minors, and late in the 2017 season, finally said, okay, I'm ready to convert to pitching. There were teams that wanted him as a pitcher out of high school. He said, no, I'm going to be an outfielder. After 2017, he signed a non-roster invite with Texas, and then his adventure began. Rule 5 picked by the Astros, but he didn't make the team, so he was sent back to Texas. Signed with Cleveland in 2019. He's been kicking around there for a while, and finally on September 20th, they called him up, and he's throwing 100 miles an hour. And not only that, if you look at the StatCast metrics, it's 100 miles an hour with rise, with life, with electricity. He's only 31. And in baseball terms, 31 is not necessarily young anymore. But it's also not hard to see him having like a Sean Doolittle-ish path. And I think that would be super cool. And I'm just very excited we got to talk about Anthony Goes. No question. It'd be a great story if he makes it. Lefties who throw 100 do not grow on trees. So he will be given every chance possible (laughs) to succeed. (laughs) 
Can can I preface your guy for a second before we get into this? We just did a whole segment on the Tampa Bay Rays, and I saw I had a little list of notes and guys I wanted to talk about. And I had a guy with a name that I thought, Matt's probably never going to know who this is. Like nobody listening is going to know who this is. And then I scroll down in our document and I see Matt's got him for a whole segment. So yeah, we are definitely talking about, drum roll please, Matt, go for it. Dietrich Enns. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I promise I'm not making this person up. He is a major league baseball player. I was watching the end of the Rays-Blue Jays game on Monday night. Um, the Rays had brought in, I can never pronounce his name right, JT Chargois. Chargois. Chargois to close. He struggled. Um, so they went to Dietrich Enns and they brought him in. And I was like, you know, the Rays are just doing a bit at this point, bringing in a guy named Dietrich Enns to close out an important game in September's, since September. So I, I, I had to go in and do a deep dive on this. You know, for starters, and this goes back to our Rays conversation, this shows how the Rays have become the one team who have just have essentially give, essentially effectively given up on the closer model, right? Their league leader, their their team leader in saves this year is Diego Castillo, who they traded away in July for the aforementioned JT Charcois. So Castillo had 14 saves. He's gone. Andrew Kittredge, who's now hurt, is their their current leader with seven saves. Like they don't, they do not model, they do not manage to the save at all. They've gotten um, 35% of their saves from their saves leader, Castillo, which is by far the lowest in baseball. No other team is below 50%. So just to give you a sense of that, right? Um, so back to ends. Dietrich Enns was a 19th round pick of the Yankees in 2012 um, out of Central Michigan University. He had a 2.11 ERA for the Staten Island Yankees that year. He ended up getting traded in 2017 um, with Zach Liddell to the Twins for Jaime Garcia. So he got traded for like a legitimate big league player in 2017. He made a brief debut for the Twins, was terrible. And then he bounced around to the Padres, had an ERA of seven in AAA in 2019, then the Mariners, then the independent Tully Monsters in 2020, where he had 42 strikeouts and one walk. And that caught the attention of the Rays, who signed him last August. From a story I, um, from our own Adam Barry, um, who wrote this about Dietrich Enns in uh, early August, he said, It was a remarkable journey, one that included a stop in Independent Ball in Joliet, Illinois, about 15 miles from his hometown of Frankfort, Illinois. He served as the staff's ace and pitching coach under manager Scott Spezio, a former big leaguer. He was able to see his family every day, living with his parents in his old bedroom, and he kept pitching while he caught the attention of the Tampa Bay Rays. How could you not love this story of Dietrich Enns? For Durham this year, he had a 2.53 ERA in 67 innings, with the Rays a 3.1 ERA with a 13 to 1 strikeout to walk ratio in September. Lefties are slugging just 231 against him with zero extra base hits. In 2017, with the, with the Twins, he was throwing 89.8 miles per hour on his fastball. This year with the, tw- with the Rays, he is over 94 miles an hour. That's right, he's added five miles an hour to his fastball. This is a great story. I hope to see Dietrich Enns in the postseason, pitching important innings for the Tampa Bay Rays. It's so good. It's such a peak Rays story. I was reading an article about him in the Tampa Bay Times, where basically when he was pitching for that independent team in Illinois, uh, the the Rays senior director of pro personnel lives in the Chicago area. And because, you know, it was during the pandemic, he's like, I'm going to go see indie ball because like, what else am I going to do? And he goes there and he says, oh, I remember this guy. I remember scouting, you know, this guy in, in college. And here's the quote. He's like, I'm sitting here thinking, this is not the Dietrich Enns I remember because the stuff looked so different. And he texted Eric Neander and they're like, oh, yeah, sure. We could try him out. And now here he is potentially pitching innings in, you know, meaningful innings. Like I want to see a playoff game where this starts or where, where a game ends where it's like Shane Boz and Dietrich Enns and like 90 percent of casual baseball fans are like, what? I'm sorry, who? Where, where did they get these guys? And I'm so glad, Matt, that you went with this. All right, we're going to finish off our show. With our purpose pitch, where we usually get to rant and rave, I'm going to flip mine on its head. Instead of having something to rant about, I'm going to highlight a uh, a moment of baseball coolness and friendliness that I think we could use a lot more of because it made me really happy to see. I am positive that all of you are watching the Miami-Washington series very closely this week. I will accept no excuses. So on Monday, Jazz Chisholm, who Matt and I are both huge fans of, hit two homers. And on one of them, he came home. And he did his little Euro step. It's like kind of a cool little step move right before he gets to the plate. And uh, it's fun. So the next day, he's facing Nationals rookie lefty Josh Rogers. Josh Rogers struck him out. 
and he did the exact same move going off the mound. And for like 150 years of baseball, that starts a bench clearing brawl, right? Because it's like you're totally showing him up. But these are young guys and this is 2021. And what was cool, so I saw on Twitter someone took both of those videos and combined them and, and tweeted about it. Well, both Jazz Chisholm and Josh Rogers are on Twitter. And Jazz Chisholm replied and he said, I love it. And Josh Rogers said, yes, sir, my dog, 100, 100, which I know makes me sound super cool to read you know, <laughs> tweet icons out loud. But the point is, both of those guys, nobody took offense. Nobody thought they were being showed up. Nobody thought they were being embarrassed. They were both like, hey, respect. You did something cool and you celebrated. And then I did something cool and I celebrated too. And nobody got mad about it. And isn't that what this should be? Isn't that fun in baseball? Who could imagine? I love the young guys. I hope there's more of this. Here, here. Uh, for my rant, I'm going to toot my own horn. Um, last week in this space, I talked about how don't get too high in the Blue Jays. You're never as good as you look when you're at your best. You're never as bad as you are when you're at your worst. And sure enough, the Blue Jays haven't even played that bad. They've just badly. They've just gone three and three in the last week. A week ago, they were in the wild card position. It looked like they couldn't be stopped. Well, they've gone three and three, and now they are on the outside looking in of uh, the playoffs right now. As I said earlier, I still think they will make it, or at least they should make it. But remember, don't get too high on the teams when they're playing when they're on a hot streak. That goes for the Cardinals right now. And yes, I told you so. Well, I think you're right about that. I also think it's funny to, you know, this is kind of your point last time. You know, the Yankees won how many games in a row? 13, right? And now they have been kind of a mess. It's almost like there are hot streaks and cold streaks over a long baseball season. And sometimes it's not about who's the best team. It's about who gets hot at the right time. That will do it for our show this week. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. We'll see you next week.